And it is so good to be with you all again. Last week I had the privilege, two weeks ago I had the privilege of being in South Korea and Hong Kong, which was just a wonderful time. Um, it was just great. It couldn't have gone better. Read about it on the blog. I'll be writing lots of stuff on there for you. Um, last week I was in Parramatta. They all say hello. That was a great time. But there is no place like home, honestly. Even for the last couple of weeks, it's good to travel, but you, every time I'm preaching in somebody else's church and you're like, it's somebody else's church. It's not home for me and... It is so good to be here. I'm not traveling again till March. Praise the Lord. I'm looking forward to just being around. And it's a privilege to bring God's word to you again today. So let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 32. We're presently in a series on the, on the book of Exodus. For those of you that are new here or haven't been around, um, it's a wonderful story of how God drew the people of God, the Israelites, out of Egypt, out of slavery, into his presence. He drew them out to draw them near. And as you examine the stories, you see it's more about us than we actually realized from before. And as we check back in on the story today, Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. God has been talking to him about the tabernacle and what that's going to be like and the priesthood and what that's going to be like. He's also got some stone tablets that he's drawn the Ten Commandments on with his own finger. But whilst he has been up there, a whole load of things have been going on down below. So we're going to read together from verse, uh, verse 7 in chapter 32. We're only going to be preaching for 15 through 24. But by our context, we'll start reading in verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. On all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testament in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burnt it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. The title of today's message is The Lesson Continues. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for its necessity. I thank you for its sufficiency. I thank you for its humor as it brings us alive that maybe this isn't just talking about them. It's talking about us as well. 
Oh Lord, would we have eyes to see today? Would your word read us as we read it? And would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, whether we like it or not, this world is a noisy place. We have five children in our home, as many of you would know. One of them is a drummer. That's where we just begin this whole proceeding. There's a sound of drums filling our house most of the time. And every dinner table, because I'm a drummer as well, there's a lot of tapping goes on on the table. And then there's the general sound of kids. Kids running, kids wrestling, kids screaming, kids crying. That's just Josh. Kids singing, kids laughing. Then there's the sound of dogs. There's the sound of TV, an MP3 player, cars going before the house, doors slamming. We have this one door that is really irritating that I'm going to take off its hinges because it slams all the time. And all these sounds happen in our house all the time. The office isn't a lot better. We don't have kids there, but it does not matter. We have musicians there and preachers there and pastors there. There is a lot of noise goes on in the office. The sound of talking, the sound of music, the sound of laughter, the sound of smoko breaks. That is now staff, thank, thank the Lord. It's actually the staff over outside of my office window. There's a, another office and they're always out the side having their smoko and chatting and going, <laughs> and I have to listen to that all the time. Like, yeah, this is awesome. And then just beyond then, there's a gym. So I can hear a gym happening. You know, even the offices aren't a place to escape to if you just want to be real quiet. And we live in a city that is truly well noisy, right? It's just the sound of cacophony all the time. There are so many different noises. Whether we like it or not, we live in a world that is a noisy place. And without doubt, the text that we have before us today is a noisy place. There's a lot of noise being talked about in this text. There are a lot of sounds being talked about in this text. And as Moses pens these words to us, Inspired by God himself, they are all distinct sounds that he actually wants us to notice. Because they tell us something about the lesson that he's trying to teach us. See, right here in verses 15 through 24, the lesson of the golden calf that Brendan started so wonderfully last week, it simply continues. The lesson on idolatry that God is seeking to inspire us with here through Moses, a most important lesson on the betrayal and dangers of idolatry. A lesson which helps us understand that when we idolize something and worship something, it betrays God. It's like looking at God saying, I love you, kind of, but I really want this. This is what I'm going to give my life to. Idolatry is a betrayal of our love for God. And there are dangers with it. Because instead of spending time with God, where there are pleasures forevermore, we're off worshipping something that doesn't even exist and looking for that to satisfy us, which it never does. There is betrayal involved in idolatry. There are dangers involved in idolatry. And what happens in this text as the lesson continues is these sounds mark off three different parts of the story as the lesson continues. I have three points then this morning. The sound of singing. Number two, the sound of blame shifting. And then number three, the sound of the coming king. This story isn't here just for us to look at Aaron. It isn't here just for us to look at the Israelites and giggle. It is here so that we can see ourselves. Number one then, the sound of singing. It is the first sound you encounter as you examine these verses. Let's look again at verses 15 through 18. It says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testament in his hand, Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Now you'll have to remember that Joshua is by now Moses' kind of right-hand man. He's the heir apparent to Moses. He might not have realized it yet, but we're starting to get hints all the way through this book now that Moses is going to be the one, uh, sorry, Joshua is going to be the one taking on from Moses. And as Moses has been up the mountain for the last 40 days, Joshua, as one of the elders, only went halfway up. 
And so as Moses comes down from the mountain, having just encountered God, he takes Joshua and they start walking back to the camp. And Joshua is instantly saying, hey, listen, I can hear something going on down there, Moses. And I'm pretty sure it's the sound of war. And Moses helps him see, you know what, no, no. No, that isn't the sound of war. It isn't the sound of victory or defeat. It is the sound of singing. And in the way he said it, I want to help you see that this was not a good thing. Joshua would have recognized most likely, okay, and it's not like good singing? No. See, singing in the Bible often is really good. The last song we hear of in the book of Exodus is actually the song of Moses. So when Moses leads the people of God through the Red Sea, they turn on the the banks of the Red Sea and they give thanks to Yahweh, thanks to God for all that he has done. We hear this in Exodus 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. It's a wonderful scene as two million people sing to the Lord. And it says at that point, Miriam and some of the other women in the camp, they start to dance before the Lord. There is a party going on on the edge of the Red Sea, praising God for all that he's done. Well, this singing is a little bit different to that. Because this singing and this dancing was in worship of a false god, an idol, a golden calf. A golden calf that they had made themselves into an image of a grass-eating, milk-producing, moo-sounding cow. And they now sing to it and worship it. And they dance around the cow accordingly in a way that is raucous. It is an indecent celebration. It is clearly, in the way it's worded, bordering on the obscene. And so as they are on the way down the mountain, Joshua thinks it's the sound of war, but Moses makes it very clear, it ain't no war. It's the sound of singing. They're worshipping a golden calf. Well, we've been up there for 40 days. They've made a golden calf, and they're starting to sing to it as as if that is the God of their salvation. And Moses, as he comes down and sees the camp, is not amused. Verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. When Moses came down and he saw the camp, his anger burned hot. You see, God had already told Moses that this is what he was going to see, but it is one thing hearing and another thing seeing, right? He's heard what he's going to be embracing and what he's going to be seeing. But now when he sees it with his own eyes, his anger burns hot. And notice that God doesn't fault Moses in this moment for his anger. He doesn't rebuke Moses for this anger. He's not in trouble for this anger. God does rebuke Moses for anger much later on in his life, but not right now. Why? Well, because this is righteous anger. It's godly anger. See, in verse 10a, we read, Now that this is God speaking, he says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. This is the exact same phrase that we now hear of Moses' anger. This is righteous anger. This is godly anger. And it is godly anger because Moses understands what this all means. He understands what this means in this moment. These people are singing to and dancing around a golden calf. He knows that this is a great betrayal before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, Israel, just 40 days earlier, you made a covenant with God. You promised that we are with you. We give thanks to you. We love you. We are totally in. We will be obedient to you. And within 40 days, okay, Never mind, we'll build a golden calf and we'll start to worship that and sing around that as if we're going to give ourselves to that. I don't know what's even happened to you. I'm going to go for this instead. This is abhorrent. This is like somebody getting married and on their honeymoon deciding they're going to sleep with somebody else. 
It is how ridiculous is going on here. It is adultery before the Lord. It is a betrayal before the Lord. And Moses understands this would be devastating and heartbreaking to the Lord. For these are his treasured possession. And within 40 days, they've already turned their back on him. And Moses understands that in this moment, they are breaking the covenant. The covenant that just 40 days earlier, they said, we're in. We're all good. We will keep your commands. We will never leave you or forsake you. We love you. We are so grateful for all you've done in our lives. So we willingly and voluntarily and wholeheartedly enter into this covenant with you. And Moses knows you've just broken it. Commands 1, 2, and 3, you've just broken in the last 40 days. It is done. And so Moses responds. Look at the rest of verse 19 and 20. It says, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burnt it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So he comes down from the mountain. He sees the singing. He sees the partying. His anger burns hot and he does two things. Number one, he throws down the tablets of the law. See, we learn in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, that these are the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And we know from Exodus chapter 34 and elsewhere in the Bible, like the book of Hebrews, that on these two stone tablets on the front and back are actually written by God with his finger, the Ten Commandments. And as Moses comes down the mountain and he sees all that is taking place, he smashes them. But I want you to understand, this isn't like a fit of anger or rage. This is a very deliberate symbolic act for the people of Israel. Because here's what's happening. Forty days earlier, they have made a covenant with the Lord that we will keep your commands. Where were they standing? On the edge of the mountain. Forty days on, Moses is gone. He comes back with these tablets in the hand. He sees all they're going through and it says when he got to the edge of the mountain, he takes these tablets and he smashes them because he wants the people of Israel to understand you are already covenant breakers. You've already blown it. These are the commands that you agreed to. These are the commands that you said you would do. These are the things that are involved in our covenant. We walk in obedience to this and he will always be our God. And already within days you've broken it. It was a symbol. It was a symbolic act for the people of Israel that this confirmation of the covenant that you made at the foot of the mountain, you've already broke. So I'm going to smash these things to pieces to help you understand this is what you've done to your relationship with God. You've broken the covenant. And then he makes a mockery of and humiliates their false god. This golden calf that they had taken the time to mold and form into being. Moses, he burns it with fire. He literally melts this bad boy down. He then takes this melted gold and he grinds it into powder. Most likely he would use the ash and the sludge from the bottom of the file along with the golden calf. And he just grinds it down. And then he sticks it in their water supply. And then he says, all right, you love your calf. We're going to drink it. Come on, everybody get your cups. And it's another piece of symbolic act for him. Because he wants to help this people see, listen... Your false God, your counterfeit God, this is how ludicrous it is that you're worshipping him. Because I just ground him down. And I just scattered him on your water. And you drank the water. You know what you're going to be doing later on? You're going to be defecating what I gave you. That's how impressive your false God is. Your false God that you were worshipping and partying and clapping around, later on you're going to be pooing out. Impressive, Israel. Nice one. He's helping them see, guys, this is massive. What were you thinking? Yahweh brings you out of Egypt. He saved you by his grace. He saved you and brought you forth on eagle's wings. Forty days later, you are worshipping an idol that now you're going to defecate out. What are you thinking? He's a wonderful leader of his people. He is so busy trying to help them see right now your false God is nothing. 
He's exactly that. A false god. An idol. No power. No strength. No God. And you've betrayed God, the one true God, with that idol? Israel, what were you thinking? You know, it's so easy as you examine this text, as I've done this week, to see the Israelite idolatry and wonder what on earth they were thinking. I mean, that's what we can feel in our hearts as we look at this. As I've been talking about it, different people are shaking their heads as if they say, yes, it's awful. Yes, I know, I feel that way. It is so obvious. It is an obvious idolatry. Building a golden calf within 40 days and worshiping it. What are they thinking? And yet, my friends, I want to submit to you that idolatry is no less prevalent today. And we are no less vulnerable to what they were going through today as well. And that's why this text is here. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6, he says, now these things, meaning these things, right here in Exodus chapter 32, that's what he's pointing to. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. For as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's quoting what happened there in Exodus chapter 32. And he's helping us see, listen, these things happened as a negative example. They are a picture of don't do that. Don't worship idols like they did. It all went horribly wrong. They desired evil. It wasn't good for them. Let us learn from them. It's not just here for them. It's here for us. And as the New Testament goes on, you get to realize, hey, this whole idolatry thing, it isn't just talking about golden calves. It's talking about idols of my heart as well. As John Calvin once said, our hearts are idol factories. They are. You don't have to be worshipping a golden calf to be idolizing something. You just have to be worshipping something that you've decided is more important to God than you. And that's an idol. Tim Keller, which Brendan quoted so well last week, he says, what is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God and anything you seek to give seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Idolatry is something that we value and find identity and meaning and worth in that is not God. But because we think, I I so need that. I'm going to need that to be happy. I'm going to need that to be fulfilled in my life. We worship it rather than God, because we think this is where the goods are. This is what will satisfy me. An idol is anything that we start to worship that is not the true God, that we start to find identity and joy in. And the truth is, our hearts are idol factories, and we can do it for a ton of different things. We can start to make an idol out of family. So instead of something that is a gift from God, as grace, we start to think, no, no, this is the very thing that brings me joy. And why haven't I got a family? If only I had a family, I think my life would be fulfilled. If I could just get a spouse, and if I just had kids, I think I'd be totally content in all things. So I'm going to give my life to getting that. I mean, I want God. Yeah, yeah, I want Him to be here, but but I really want this. And then you have a family, and then you want to give your life away to pleasing your family. And so everything in your life becomes a negotiable. Giving becomes a negotiable. Attending Sunday morning becomes a negotiable. Giving yourself to group becomes a negotiable. Even spending time with Jesus becomes a negotiable. But yes, you can do ballet! I love you! And we start to worship this family as if this is what will bring me joy. My children respecting me and loving me. It's all I want. If I just have that, I will be content. All these things, they can change. I mean, I want God, don't get me wrong, but this is what will bring me joy. We can make an idol out of approval. That I just need approval of others. I will position myself in any way I can to get approval. Speaking the truth in love, ah, that's, that's difficult because they might not like me at the end, so I'm never going to do that because I want their approval. 
We can make an idol out of achievement. I just want to work so that everybody realizes I'm really good. And then we say, oh, but actually, I don't care what everybody thinks. It's just for my own self-fulfillment. Okay, that's still a problem. So Christ isn't enough for you? Oh, yeah, as long as I'm doing really well in work, because then I'll have an identity. I'll have my life will have meaning. My life will have value. Study, we can do the same thing with life. I just need to achieve things in my life. I don't want to be average at everything. My life will have no meaning if I'm just average. I need to be good at something. And my ministry, my ministry, I need, I need to do a significant role. So, hey, Patrick, what, just wondering what roles are on the church. Oh, the setup. Ooh, I was thinking more preaching, you know, something like that. Setup. I'm not sure that's going to really do it. I mean, I'm happy to serve. I'll do what anything. But like setup, I mean, no one will notice. Preaching. So we start to crave these things, and then we start to even think, if I don't have that in my life, I'm not sure how my life will ever have meaning. So I'm just going to go to different churches until they let me preach. I'm just going to find a place that they'll let me preach, because then my life will have meaning. You know what that is? That's an idol. That's an idol that you are building your life around. Then there's the idol of comfort. Lord, I will take up my cross and follow you anywhere. Ideally, I'll need a four-bedroom house, two cars, nice job, and I'd like to play soccer on a Saturday. And really nice friends and nice clothes. But hey, I'm all in. What's that? That's an idol of comfort. The Lord, ultimately, I'm all in. And I know you are the suffering servant, but I would ideally like to live like a king, if that's okay. Thank you for the service. I want to be a king. That's comfort. I've made an idol out of my comfort, so I'm not going to do anything in my life that makes me uncomfortable because I won't like that. I won't be happy. I won't be content. So I need to be comfortable. You see the way it works? Idols aren't all golden calves. They're idols within as well. The idolatry of Israel is blindingly obvious, but sometimes we just need to realize that we are all vulnerable to this type of idolatry in our hearts. And how kind then of the Lord to give us this story, don't you think? So we can see ourselves. So we can see how stupid it is. So we can see the betrayal of what it is. To worship an idol, a false god, rather than the one true God. The betrayal that it is, but also the dangers that it is. When we say, but if I just have this, I'll be so happy. And God looks on and says, no, you will never be happy with that. I will. I'm just going to give myself to it. If I can just achieve, if I can just achieve, I'll be recognized. I'll have approval. I'll be happy. And God says, you will never be happy with that. But we give year after year after year to that. The dangers of idolatry, they pull us away from God. Don't look at idols and think, oh, I just don't think they make a big deal in our lives. What's the deal? The deal is they will pull you away from God. You never drift towards God when you're worshipping an idol. You drift away from God. All the time. There are great dangers with idolatry, which is why he tells us in the commandments, have no idols in your life. Worship me exclusively. I'm the only one that can bring you joy. I'm the only one that can bring you contentment. I'm the only one that can bring you peace. All these things, they are counterfeit gods. They are pretend gods. They will not deliver as advertised. But I will. How kind of the Lord to give us this sound of singing where we can learn about idolatry. But it's not the only sound we hear in this text. Number two, we also hear the sound of blame shifting. And oh my, what an amusing sound this is. When Moses comes down from the mountain, he can hear the sound of rebellious singing and revelry and idolatry. But what he also then hears is the sound of blame shifting and excuse. You see, in verse 21, he goes to his older brother Aaron and he wants to give him a chance. He's thinking the best of him. It's a good thing. Hey, Aaron, maybe there's something that I really didn't understand because I'm thinking, Aaron, I put you in charge of all the people. I don't know what they did. Did they tie you up, beat you up? I'm not sure. How did this happen, Aaron? He gives him a chance. Maybe there's something I'm misunderstanding. And this is what he says. So in verse 21, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you? that you have brought such a sin upon them. He's recognizing, Aaron, this is your leadership. But what did they do to you? Help me see. Well, Aaron does not respond very well. It would be safe to say that in spite of this chance, Aaron did not acquit himself well. 
Because he begins to do what we all tend to do. It was their fault. No blame. We all like to sort of be the central character of our lives when stuff's going well. Have you noticed that? Stuff's going well. Oh, it was me. <laughs> In fact, actually, we don't say that. What we actually say is when somebody else gets the credit for it, you're like, I can't believe they got the credit for it. I should be getting the credit for that. Why? Because we want to be the center character when things are going well. But then when things are going badly, it wasn't me, I don't know, it was him. That's what we want to do. We, we change our role. It's exactly what Aaron does right here. He starts to play the blame game. So in verse 22, he blames the people. Let's look at it. It said, And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. He's basically saying, well, listen, there's two million of them and like one of me. I mean, I'm not even very big. And they're really evil, Moses. They're nasty people. When they want to do something, what can one do? It's their fault. I mean, they just, it was them. I mean, admittedly, I might have asked for their earrings and molded, you know, a golden calf. But anyway, it was them. He starts to blame other people. And then in verse 23, it's subtle. But he actually starts to blame the messenger. Verse 23. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You know, it is so, but what Aaron is saying to Moses in this moment is, listen, Moses, here's the thing. You were gone 40 days and 40 nights, right? You left me with this evil people. No text, no email, no WhatsApp message, no messenger. We had no idea where you'd gone. If you told me where you'd gone, I might be able to help him off. But I had no idea where you'd gone. So what was I meant to do? They wondered where you'd gone. I kind of wondered where you'd gone. There was no letter. There was no pigeon. I mean, I just had no sign you were still alive. So what can I do? So Moses, it's not really my fault. It's the people. It's these nasty people. And kind of, to be honest, it was you. You left me for ages. What were you thinking? And then... He blames his circumstances. Verse 24. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and well, out popped this calf. I mean, it is ridiculous, but it is a humorous response, is it not? You're like, you know... Is it, I gotta believe you're saying this, but yeah, yeah. I mean, look, they gave me these earrings, and yeah, I just sort of I threw them in, and I turned around, and whoa, it's a golden calf! I can't believe it. Let's just get it out. I suppose. What do we do? We should. Probably, I know. Let's just worship it. I guess. You know, they, he's just trying to point the finger to everything else. It, it's the people, Moses. It, it, it was you. You left me, and then I put it in the fire. I probably wasn't really expecting anything, but out popped this calf. It is ridiculous in nature. His consistent mantra again and again and again is, Moses, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It was not me. He blame shifts again and again and again. And as you look on at these excuses, you can't help but smile and wry laugh in places, can you? You just think, this is ridiculous. And yet, as you point the finger at Moses, as you point the finger at Aaron, And as you laugh, Aaron, you have to understand there are three fingers pointing right back at you in that moment. Because the truth is, I think this type of blame shifting, we're all vulnerable to that as well. And we're all tempted to do that. Sometimes. I think we practice that. So we all expect little kids to do it, don't we? And they do do it. We have two little kids. Our two youngest ones, they do this all the time. If not daily, then hourly. Hourly it takes place. You cannot believe it. So you're upstairs, you come down, because clearly World War Three is taking place. And you examine the trampoline where the scene of the crime has taken place, and you're like, guys, what has happened? Instantaneously, every time you get, it was them, it was him, it was her, it was him. It's crazy. Never once do I hear from my small children, Oh, Dad, thanks for coming to our rescue. It was me. I have sinned before the Lord and before you. Would you forgive me? Never! Ever! Every time. It was them! It doesn't matter what the scene of the crime is. Playroom. It was them! Lounge. It's him! No one ever says, oh, it was me. Thank you so much for asking. Never. And then we have one child, our youngest, who, who actually, she steals food at different times. And then you say... Uh, child, where, where is this? Where, where is this chocolate gone? 
I have no idea. It was, it was him. Okay, I know it wasn't him because he was with me. Yeah. Yeah, it, it got into my mouth. Okay, how did it get in your mouth? It sort of fell. And, so, and you're like, are you kidding me? You just cannot believe what you're hearing, but this is like the truth of what I get told. So, so first of all, it was him, and now it just fell from the pantry into your mouth, unwrapped itself on the way down, I'm sure, and then fell in. Yeah, it just fell it. You are kidding me. We expect little kids to do this, and it could drive you up the wall, but you kind of expect it. But the truth is, big kids do it as well. Namely us. See, how often is it that God starts to point an area of sin in our life out? We start to become aware of sin in our lives. It might be through the Lord directly. It might be through his word. It might be through the Holy Spirit. It might be through a friend that's come to you and said, hey, listen, do you think that's an area of your life? It looks sinful to me. And straight away, instead of owning it, what do we do? We play the blame game. Well, you know, Dave, the thing is, if you knew my parents, if you knew the way they've been with me, you would understand. I can't help myself. If you knew my spouse, if you knew the way that they are with me, you'd understand. I can't, I can't help. I mean, it's not really sin. It's just sort of just sort of pops out of me, because it's just the way they've been with me all this time. If you knew my kids, if you were around my kids, you would understand why I have to be angry all the time. It's not even anger, it's just like life in response to their presence. If you knew my friends, the way they don't support me in my life, you would understand why I am the way I am. If you understand my teachers or my boss, you would understand that I simply cannot help myself at this point. It's not me. It's them. You don't have to live with them. I do. Sound familiar? We start to blame other people. And then sometimes we start to blame the messenger, don't we? So somebody comes to you humbly in love and says, Hey, listen, but do you think, do you think that was a good response there when you talked to them like that? Oh, well, it's fine for you to say. Just because you're perfect in every way. If you cared for me more, if you were pointing this out for me more, I'm sure I would never be doing this. So now it's their fault? It's the messenger's fault? Somehow the questioner? It's something to do with them? Well, yes. If you just did a better job of caring for me and looking after me, then I probably wouldn't be struggling with these things. So we blame people, and then other times we blame the messenger who's come kindly to try and ask us some questions to care for our soul. And then last-ditch scenario, we blame our circumstances. Well, it's my job. If I just earned more money, I could be just like you. I think I'd be content in every way and I'd be fine. If I had your family, it would probably be fine, but I haven't. I've got my family. If I lived in a different city or a different suburb, my life wouldn't be as busy. And that's when I could really love the Lord with all my heart, mind and strength. But I don't. I live in this city and it's so busy. What can I do? I mean, if I just had a better ministry, then I reckon I'd be so content that I'd probably be, I'd probably just holy, just like him. If I just had the ministry, if I was just healthy, if I could just get not sick, I'm pretty sure I would be fine in every way. So is it your sin? No. No, it's a health challenge, or it's a parent challenge, or it's a family challenge, or a job challenge. My friends, when we do that, we have to be honest with ourselves that we may laugh and joke and point the finger at Aaron, But these three fingers are pointing right back at us and helping us see the Aaron in us. We are all tempted, I think, at times to blame shift. And instead of then owning our sin and taking it before the Lord and then receiving his glorious forgiveness, we don't even call it sin. We just call it life and personality and character. And we blame everybody else for it. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? If we are faithful to confess them, then he is faithful to forgive us our sins. 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There will be that sense of being washed clean of our sin. You know, when somebody blame shifts, they never get to that because they never own it, so they never confess anything. It's everybody else's fault. And I'm not saying that our circumstances don't affect what's going on in our heart. They do. But all they ultimately do is provide heat to our heart. When the bad stuff comes out, that's all you and that's all me. Our heart, if you imagine it like a sponge, all our circumstances do is they squeeze it a bit more. And God gives us self-control to contain it within. But when we're not looking to the Lord, instead it comes out of our mouths and our behavior. And then we blame other people for it. But actually, no, it's come from within. It's come from who we actually really are. My friends, it's so important that we own the things we do in our lives and then take them to the Lord who says, I'll deal with that for you. I'll forgive you for that. And I'll cleanse you from that. And I will help you change in that. How kind of the Lord to give us this story about Aaron. But how kind of him to give it to us in a context where you realize, I'm like that. And I need to learn from his example. And instead of then keeping it to myself and blaming others, I need to own it and take it to the Lord and receive forgiveness. And as I was thinking about this text this week and this lesson, I just became very, very grateful for what I think it teaches us. I mean, first and foremostly, as I was thinking about this lesson this week, I thought, man, I'm so grateful to the Lord for his word. You think you're reading the word? You are. But it's actually reading you all the time. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. Isn't that wonderful? When we open God's word, it's like a missile going into our hearts. And you think, whoa, why am I feeling this? Because it's reading you. It's living and active. It's bringing things alive in your heart. That's the way God works. It's why James tells us in chapter 1, verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word. Why? Well, Because it is able to save your soul. It points you to Jesus. It points you to what he's done. It points you to the place where you can be completely forgiven of your sin. But more even than that, it also helps you as Christians to discern what could distract me away from Jesus? What could distract me away from him? What could pull me away from his presence? where there is joy and pleasures forevermore. It highlights these things. It highlights these dangers and warns us against them again and again and again. Don't have idols. They will be dangerous for you. Don't blame shift. That will not work for you. You will not be able to run to Jesus and be amazed with Jesus when you don't think it's ever you. You think it's somebody else. This word is able to save our souls, not just from the consequence of sin, but the ongoing dangers of sin. You know, I also at different times found myself giving thanks to God for the many pastors I've had in my life. Because the many pastors I've had in my life have not been like Aaron or her. I mean, where's her, you may ask? Didn't Moses leave Aaron and her in charge of the people of God? Where's he gone? Yeah. Where's her? No idea. That's the point. Where is he? When he should have been standing and going, stop, Aaron, stop. That's idol worship. Instead, he's at the back. Down there. Oh, I don't know what we're meant to do. We should probably join in. Like, what are you doing? When Aaron should be saying, people, stop. This is wrong before the Lord. Oh, well, you know, it's awkward. They've been evil. Okay, pop us your earrings. Let's make something. What are you doing? You know, it just made me grateful for pastors I've had in my life. I think of Pete Greasy and Pete Bowley, who I had in the UK for many years. Men who loved the word and feared God more than they feared people. I thank God for Patrick and Brendan. Two men who fear God more than they fear you. And they love the word and they are committed to bringing it to bear on people's lives. I also thank God for for you. See, the truth is, uh, in our lives, idols can be really hard to see. If you think you can see all your idols... You are sadly mistaken. Because idols have a habit of pretending they're not really idols. That's why we need friends that stick closer than a brother. That's why we need people that are devoted to one another. We need people who love us enough to say, hey, listen, 
Do you think there could be an idol in your life? I mean, look, honestly, I honestly don't know. I don't know your heart. I don't know your life. But you do talk about that like all the time. And you do say that if I don't really get that, I don't know how I'm going to be able to go on. My life won't have even meaning. Do you think there could be an idol? I thank God for men and women that we have all around this church that are willing to speak like that to one another. Why? Because we need that. You can't see your own idols. You're blindsided by them. We don't see 2020. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. We need brothers and sisters to be able to speak the truth in love and love us enough to help us in our lives. And then the other thing that this lesson reminded me of is just how much I, and I think we, need a saviour, don't we? As you examine this idolatry, you quickly realise, if you're honest, man, that's a challenge for me. Because my heart is an idol factory. My heart makes idols all the time. You want to know how long it takes for your heart to make an idol? Well, within 40 days, the people of God have turned away from God and worshipping a golden calf. So we can say like once a month in particular, if you ignore God's people and don't come to church and are not around people, you will probably have an idol that you'll be worshipping. It doesn't take long to find an idol in your life that you start giving yourself to. And then when somebody comes and says to you, oh, do you think it's an idol? You say, no, I'm sure it's not. No, definitely not. I would suggest you slow right down right there and prayerfully consider it before the Lord. Maybe. Idolatry is a real factor, I think, in our hearts. Blame shifting is a real factor in our hearts. I know it is mine. So what hope do we have? Well, that's my final point, just in conclusion. The sound of the coming king. See, the book of Exodus always points us to the need of another to come. The whole of the Old Testament points us to the need of one to come, one greater than Moses, one greater than the high priests, one greater than all of the sacrifices that have been made throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. How can we get back into the garden? How can we get back into the presence of God? How can we be right with God? And the book of Exodus points us time and time and time again to our need for a Savior. My friends, I have good news for you. One greater than Moses has come. For Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But 2,000 years ago, in a hill far, far away, there was the distinct sound of the coming king. Listen to this, Luke chapter 2. And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there were with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. My friends, Exodus always points us to the need of one greater than Moses to come. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came. For behold, there is born to you in this city a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And they go and they encounter this baby, and this baby's name was Jesus. Jesus came to give his life away as a ransom for many. Why? So that you and I could be forgiven of our blame shifting. We could be forgiven of our idolatry. We could be forgiven of our sin. He came to offer the perfect sacrifice, namely himself, so that we may have life and that in abundance. Isn't that incredible? Merry Christmas. Hope has come. He is the answer to our sin. He is the answer to our idols and our temptation to blame shift. Listen, there is no greater criticism on your life than the cross. It was necessary because of you. 
But there is no greater love for you to see than the cross. Because it's what he did for you. And he did it so that you could come back into the presence of God. So that you could be forgiven of your sin. So that you could be clothed in his holiness and righteousness. And so that you could enter into the very presence of God where the father says, Welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. You're my delight. And at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior today. He's the only way home. Everything else that you may be tempted to worship, they're not real. But Jesus is totally real. And he has made it possible for you to be right with God through faith in him. And if you have put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's what he's doing in you even now. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Isn't that wonderful? Even now, he's busy at work in your life. Helping you see idols and put them to death. Helping you own your sin rather than blame shift. Why? Because he's busy at work changing you into the person and work of his son. That's the main thing he's committed to in your Christian life. To do whatever necessary to help you become like Jesus. For your good and his glory. So may he always be our delight. And may he always be our peace. He's the only one that gets us back into the presence of God. And may he always then be the resounding joy and sound of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for being profoundly patient and loving and gracious with us in the midst of our consistent tendency and temptation to worship idols. Lord, you are so gracious to us. And you know that our hearts are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave the God we love. And yet in grace and mercy, you arrest our souls through your word. And you remind us again, hey, listen, Dave, you're going off. You're starting to pursue something that will not be real. It will not deliver as advertised, but I can. Lord, thank you for speaking to our souls. Thank you for coming after us, not just as a world, but as individuals. May we behold your face and continue to be more and more like you. And with all glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.